Hello. Wow, you sound really clear. <laughs> That's awesome. My um, my trick, my chicken is dry. <laughs> I was trying to... the uh, the rooster has left the hen house. Um, <laughs> are we speaking in code? <laughs> we are. We are. No, I'm literally. I um, I tried to eat a piece of chicken for my lunch right before I, I called you, uh-huh. and I thought I thought two things. One was I can eat this really fast. <laughs> Too, John probably won't pick up right away. You know what people love on podcasts is they love when the hosts eat. Well, yeah, of course. Hey, um, are you recording? I am. Okay, because I just got a little call recorder message saying it's having a problem. Uh oh. So I'm did gonna. You, did you upgrade to the new version? No, I don't touch versions. <laughs> I learned that from last time. Okay, so I'm. Um, it says it has input. There's no output. I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna re-record. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know what's going on. Weird. Well, so, I I did I did foolishly just uh, right before the call. I I loaded I loaded Skype and Skype said there's a new version of Call Recorder. I said okay, no problem. No. <laughs> I, I, I downloaded it and installed it. Oh well, is it working? It seems okay. to be. It, the 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 inputs are going up and down, and the outputs are going up and down. Okay. Good. Oh, so I just ate more. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing here. Oh. <laughs> but that wasn't chicken. I have some potato too that I ate. Um, so anyway, the, like like I was saying in my story, um, I thought that I could eat the chicken very quickly, and I thought it would take you longer to pick up. So um, I was incorrect on both those cases. So uh, don't 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 let my uh, my eating my lunch my lunch eating uh, interrupt our podcasting. <laughs> okay, so well, let me get in the way. Well, I you know since you were so. Um, pre- so over preparing. Um, I didn't do anything. So I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm ready to go if, if you want to start. <laughs> I'm, yeah. You know what? You, you say that you didn't do anything, but let, you know, like, like we've described our workflow, how you kind of add stuff every couple of days. You added a bunch of things into our uh, notes file, and I did a bunch, or not a bunch, but a few this morning. Right. So you, you, you did stuff. Don't I, don't I, I did. I did do stuff. I just didn't do any last minute preparation, other than, uh, as I explained to you in an, in an iMessage, um, going around and, and walking in the very warm weather that we're having here in New Jersey. And and just to show you that I did do some preparation for the show, um, I wanted to uh, actually. Um, uh, I'll stop. Uh, sorry, I want to stop time machine um i want to uh i wanted to uh uh uh, ask you how the weather was i said well wait i can look on my weather app and in fact you know because i was going to i was all set to complain to you about how hot it was and then i said well you know ben's in north carolina it's probably not gonna it's not gonna impress him but actually i think it's hotter in new jersey right now than it is in north carolina wow um that's that's crazy it's 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 very pleasant here it's 88 sunny um this morning i uh um, I worked out on my back deck for a couple hours, and it was um, like seventy. It was, oh. it was beautiful. Well, it's been it's been ungodly hot here in New Jersey. It's been in the nineties every day, um, and it's only going to get worse for uh, for a couple of days here before uh, before it gets better. So it'll probably cool off in New Jersey right in time to get hot for IAFP in in uh, in, in Charlotte. Well, hey, um, I, I think uh, as is logical when it gets hot up north. Move south. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. That work, That works if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. It does. It does. It works, it works famously if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, we've had uh, – we'll, we'll do – this. let's call this one weather, weather cast, weather podcast. Um, okay. 
we've had a lot of rain uh, recently, <laughs> and um, I'm looking at, uh, at Google. I just Googled the Raleigh weather because I don't. I mean, it, it doesn't usually impact what I do. And Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday this week, uh, up, upcoming, it's going to be like 88, 86, 81, 79. It's like, it's like, it's like winter um, <laughs> and rain all, all four of those days. Oh, well, well, it's nice except for the rain part. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, weather, the weather is, is nice here, and I'm uh, sad to hear that it's really uh, uh, hot there, and it's, well, it's hard. To- yeah, but at least, at least uh, our air conditioning broke, but at least we were able to get it fixed uh, quickly. So it's not, it's not too terribly uncomfortable, and actually it's very comfortable in my living room. It's just not so comfortable up here on the second floor of my house in, in my office. But I have the, I have the fan running. I, I've cut back to one fan um, just because the second fan would be very noisy for recording a podcast. So I'm... Uh, I've got some iced coffee. I've got some ice water. Um, I'm I'm uh, sitting very still. <laughs> Actually, I'm still wearing pants. Well, I was going to say, by the end of the podcast, it could get so hot. You could, who knows what you'll be wearing? Who knows? <laughs> really, just Kristen, because you're not going to say, and no one else will know. Right, right. Um, yes, and, and just like uh, and just like eating on a podcast, people love it when you talk about what you're wearing. Yeah, of course, it matters. These things matter, Doc. Uh, so we we have uh, we should probably do a show. Yeah, um, do we we have follow up, yeah. um, and we have follow up from uh, uh, someone who is, is fast becoming uh, our our number one fan of the show, at least based on the, the fact of how often he gives us feedback. And that's uh, Aaron Oesugi, um, uh, ghee like Indian clarified butter. Um, <laughs> Oesugi. He like clarifying Indian butter. That's apparently his name. Yes. Um, and uh, so uh, uh, what uh, what Aaron uh, sent to us uh, was a link to this uh, Golden Corral dumpster story, uh, which was covered in the Huffington Post. But I think it was also covered on uh, on Barf Blog. And it's uh, it's basically again, it's it's one of these stories about how, um, you know, things go. Whoops. Things. Oh, have you done can, something? Can can you hear that? No, I can't hear anything. Well, I can hear. Oh, you. there's 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 a there. Uh, this. Uh, <laughs> there, you're you're gonna have to describe it. It's great. Whatever. It is well, if you load, if you load the stupid. Oh God, the Huff, I hate the Huffington Post. You load the stupid Huffington Post um, web page, and oh. somehow sound starts playing. Yeah, it's, so, it's like a shocking thing. Of, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's let me advertisement or some sort. Yeah, let me uh, let me let me go to this go to the page and then and then uh, quickly turn off sound on my computer. Oh, <laughs> oh it what still it, still doesn't doesn't do it. Oh, it's so annoying. What it takes to derail Don? Oh. Uh, it's just you like really, you really want to drive him crazy. Put sound on a website. Oh, it's so annoying. And Huffington Post is the worst because it's just all covered with ads. But uh, and anyway, um, so we should we should talk about we should talk about this story. But but apparently I can't do it because if I do, I'm going to get distracted by the sound coming in my ears. <laughs> um, so uh, so ba- basically, this is something that it was on the Huffington Post, um, and it was it was I guess voted up on Reddit. I'm not quite exactly sure how Reddit works, but it was it was voted up on on Reddit. And as Aaron puts in his message to us, maybe even Barf Blog 
worthy. And then depending on how true the videos may be, um, uh, definitely uh, definitely a problem. And again, as he points out, tough uh, for public relations for for Golden Corral. Um, so. So what what do you, what do you think of I mean what do you well let me let me even frame it more generally what do you think about these exposés you know somebody in the back of a restaurant catches some teenager doing something stupid or somebody photographs rats or roaches or or somebody you know has pictures of food being stored by a dumpster what what do you, what do you think about that whole genre now I guess it is a genre genre, yeah, of, a genre. of of news reporting or of uh, and again these things do get covered from time to time on Barfblog what. what what do you think of that whole thing? Well, I think that it often um, stems around some yuck factor stuff that may or often is not um, uh, a public health risk. Um, you, you know, certain things uh, could be, but there's a lot of like circumstantial um, what happened to it after the video kind of kind of stuff. And I think that it's a genre that is, I mean popular people seem to love it this 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 video this uh, golden crowd video um was you know a, a national the viral as they say uh big story i mean it was it was kind of all over the place um and has been linked all over the the internet and i think that it, it says something it says um it, people are interested in perceived food safety i guess um and they're really really interested when uh, a company that they may or may not uh, be a patron of uh, has some bad PR, um, and it's. I mean, that's what that's what I think makes this this stuff kind of popular. Does it matter for you know? Uh, it, does it is it likely that someone's going to get sick or not? I don't. I don't know. But this video is kind of interesting because I think it's the first one that I've seen where um, the individual uh, uh, Brandon Huber, I believe it is, the infamous Brandon Huber. Um, it uh, did something that to capitalize on the popularness of, of the genre. This, uh, you know, that as the story goes, um, th- he uh, posted this video after trying to sell it uh, for five thousand dollars on eBay. And so, so I guess what what I see is there's a, a segment of the food, uh, of well, it's not just food service. There's a segment of the population that sort of ca- that sort of recognizes that people want to see this kind of stuff. So whether it was staged or not, or um, you know, it, uh, Golden Crow came out with a um, a statement very quickly afterwards saying, "Look, none of that food went into service. It was uh, the manager has been fired because they weren't following proper procedure. It should have been disposed, but it was sitting there." Um, this individual, uh, took the, um, uh, took the video and, and then tried to, um, to make some money off of it. Um, but, um, apparently, I mean, according to the, to the, the story here, um, Brandon still has his job. The manager doesn't, but it's, but it's like, you know, something, um, these types of things get national coverage and more people will, um, try to create them and more people will watch them. You know, it's, it'll just keep going. I mean, I, I guess the good news is people are interested in food safety or at least perceived food safety. And that's kind of cool, but it's not about public health. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, or may, maybe not necessarily about public health. Right. 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 That's uh, yeah. a better way to put it. Yeah. I mean, cause it could be about public health, but, but, but it may not be. Um, yeah. And I did, I did find a, a quiet webpage that talks about this. And that is of course on barf blog, uh, where it was reblogged and in, in a post, uh, which we'll link to, we're not going to link to this 
idiots at Huffington Post. Um, is this really the worst thing about eating at Golden Corral? <laughs> Franchise accused of unsanitary practices, which is an article by by Doug, um, and he and he, he opens with a little bit of personal information, which is always always nice to to see. I think in a post, and, and I'll read to you from the blog post. It says a hallmark of the annual golf trip was a visit to the Golden Corral in Newport News, Virginia, at the assistance of our host. It's where Chapman got his nickname that didn't stick, Sweet Tea. So Ben, you've got to tell me now. I want to know what what's the origin of your nickname that didn't stick. Well, so um, one of the first or second times that I ever went to a, that I'd ever eaten at a Golden Crow, uh, I was a um, young, naive graduate student with all these uh, older guys that uh, knew each other through hockey and golf, and I was just kind of invited along for the ride. Um, we went to Golden Crow, and the server asked me. Um, whether I wanted a refill on my uh, beverage. And I said, sure. And then she said, sweet tea. And I had no idea what that was because at that point I did not live in the South. I lived in uh, Ontario and uh, there's no, that sweet tea does not exist. Exactly. No, no concept of what it was. Um, So I kind of just looked at her and I didn't say anything. And she looked at me and said, sweet tea. And then I had to look at someone. I said, I, I don't know what, what she's asking. I don't know what you're asking. And she said, would you like sweet tea? <laughs> and I said, no, um, Diet Coke, please. Um, but the the guys who, who I was having dinner with um, just thought it was the greatest thing that, that this individual yelled at me twice. Sweet tea? Sweet tea? So the further <laughs> the trip, um, I was referred to as sweet tea. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And- and I have to say, there's an I don't know who, not sure who these people are, but there's an awesome photo on the Barf Blog web page of a couple of uh, uh, baseball cap wearing guys that look like they might be at a Golden Corral, and one of them is flipping off the camera. So, yes, uh, those are our um, uh, golfing colleagues, uh, um, uh, Steve and John, who uh, often would uh, be the source or the the uh, the start of many many jokes. Good fun guys. To- to golf with but yeah uh, good good pictures for for barf blog excellent um so we also have a couple more things in the uh follow-up category and uh that is uh, uh ben and h pylori and uh, as you've written here my hockey player friends yogurt story so uh, can you tell me your hockey player friends yogurt story i can um before we jump into oh, this i yep. just have one more thing sure which was um can can we uh, Going back to the Golden Crowd video, can we just have a a moratorium on recording videos using a portrait um, and not landscape? <laughs> I just I just don't like it. I, I I think that that often people don't understand how it may be viewed on a on a a, a TV or some sort of a widescreen monitor, and so I think that Golden Crowd video would have been a lot more um, effective. Um, I would have liked it a lot more had it been in landscape. So I just, <laughs> <laughs> I think you, I think you ought to go on YouTube and post that, uh, that comment. I, I think I might, I'm going to mention that, that, uh, this is what great, great video would have been better if it was in landscape. I'll troll that. Uh, anyway, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's move on to H pylori. So, um, things have all, uh, have all cleared up for me. I've had a, I'm feeling much better uh, than uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, we talked. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, it was. It's good. Uh, everything is good. But so I was telling one of the um, 
one of the guys I play hockey with uh, that I had this infection, and you know he's a doctor, um, uh, at, uh, a like a a real doctor, like an emergency room doctor or something. Uh, As we say in the business, the kind of doctor that helps people. Right, right. The kind of doctor that helps people. And uh, so I was telling him about this, and he goes, "You know, I had a I had a patient once that said." Um, you know, that I treated when I was doing my residency that uh, had H. pylori. And I, I said to her, oh, you know, you should go out and get some yogurt. Um, and, you know, that'll really help. And, uh, um, you know, no, 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 nothing sort of further than that. And he didn't really think anything of it. Um, and so uh, two weeks later when uh, the patient came back to, to see him, he said, so, um, you know, did the yogurt, you know, I'm sure you're sick of yogurt by now. She goes, oh, yeah, I totally am. And he goes, so did you, you know, change up different flavors? Um, you know, she, she said that uh, he, he suggested that she use it for, uh, you know, multiple times a day. Um, and she goes, oh, I, I don't know. I didn't really think that the flavor mattered too much. Um, and he goes, oh, okay, why, you know, why is that? And she goes, well, because I used it in my anus. Goes, oh, I, I clearly did not give you enough information on how I thought you might want to use that yogurt, which would be to eat it. <laughs> so I don't know if he was uh, um, uh, uh, pulling my leg, as they say in the business, but I thought it was a pretty good story. I did eat a lot, eat a lot of yogurt, or, or, or I have eaten a lot of yogurt over the last couple of weeks uh, to, to help my stomach. You've, you've ingested a lot of yogurt, I think is what you mean to say, and you've ingested it by eating. Correct, correct. Oral ingestion. And uh, and you know and you know what Ben if you if you Google yogurt enema there's a lot of there's a lot of hits on Google. It's, I'm sure. Well, and maybe that's a YouTube video. <laughs> I'm not looking for any videos of that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So thank you to my my doctor friend uh, who will remain nameless for that story. Excellent, excellent. So um, we have um, one one more bit of follow up, um, which is also a bit of follow up that you added, and uh, the the header here is mechanically tenderized beef project. So we we've, we've talked for, for a number of episodes of the show about mechanically tenderized beef and the fact that we we through our podcasting efforts have basically motivated the FSIS to to change the regulations on on uh, mechanically tenderized beef. But apparently we haven't done enough in you're going to do some more. Right, right. Yay us, by the way, <laughs> um, for for that. Uh, so yeah, the conversation that you and I had, uh, I think it was in episode uh, 44, uh, a little bit, and well, for, going back to 43 and 44 uh, on mechanically tenderized beef and, and how um, the based on uh, Deep South's comments, um, the issue it may not be at retail, but it's probably at food service. So, um, so Ellen, one of my graduate students who works in beef risks and communication, um, has drawn up a little bit of a plan on how um, we're going to do some investigation on that, basically to to uh, to find out um, what kind of practices there are on communicating that risk from a food service supplier to a uh, restaurant operator. Uh, or even just being able to communicate that it was mechanically, mechanically tenderized, and then whether those products are held any uh, or handled any differently, and really whether they're cooked um, any differently, would a, uh, a a restaurant offer a mechanically tenderized 
um, or certain, you know, certain types of mechanical tenderizability or needle tenderization really be the interesting ones. That product uh, for uh, rare, a, a rare steak. And so Ellen's, uh, she's got a plan, and we're gonna we're gonna do some work probably uh, starting in January with this as part of her PhD um, to to get at some of those questions and hopefully, um, you know, if we can understand a little bit more about what the perceived messages are or perceived. Um, risks are and what the actions are, which I think are probably like zero. Uh, then we can start to build some um, some materials to uh, to impact that. But it was yeah, sort of follow up was spurred out of our discussions. I think we've got a portion of a PhD project coming up. Oh, that's 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 really nice. You know, that's one of the things too that I I find very useful about doing the podcast or just on serving on committees or doing doing the kind of stuff that doesn't on the face of it seem like it's going to reward you very much. Even, even doing extension stuff, which is obviously part of my job. It's part of your job. But if you pay attention, I think when you're doing those kinds of things, it begins to create um, in your head, the idea for researchable topics. I mean, just as an example, we talked a number of episodes ago about, I think about the woman, excuse me, in New Jersey, who is, uh, wants to make a whole bunch of, um, uh, low sugar jams and the fact that uh, she's basically got a bunch of recipes off the internet and she's modifying those recipes by um, um, basically reducing the amount of sugar, but really has no idea of the food safety implications of that. And we talked about the uh, the watermelon jelly outbreak, uh, botulism outbreak. And, and as it turns out, because of those conversations, um, if I get my act together and get organized and get my graduate student tasked with it, we're actually going to get some samples from this person. And she's decided that she's not in a hurry to get to market. So we have a, a basically another year before the high summer market hits, um, uh, a year to work with her and, and hopefully collect some pH and water activity data on her products. And, and it'll help her out. Uh, but at the same time, it'll also make a nice uh, applied research publication or a nice extension publication and hopefully expand our knowledge base about what happens when you modify these products, what happens to the, the water activity. So anyway, um, uh, another example of how uh, I think if, you're, if you pay attention, um, you, get, you get ideas for, for good research projects. And I'm, I'm pleased to see that yours, uh, the mechanically tenderized beef one with your, with your student is working out the same way. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. I, I mean, I think you're, you're right. I, I, uh, I often worry that I'll run out of ideas <laughs> oh, I you know I, I think after a while, as you if you write down those ideas and you see the list of ideas that you are don't have the bandwidth to move on, gradually grow longer and longer, you begin to not worry about that anymore. <laughs> I, I just you know I always feel like I've I maybe have peaked as a person or as a researcher, <laughs> faculty member, like and maybe like a, like I'm on the down the downward uh, trail now, like I peaked a while ago. Um, so, so it's nice. It is nice to, to, um, to get in these conversations. And, you know, I, I, it's one of the things that, that I get out of IAFP a lot. Not, I mean, I think probably our last couple episodes sound like us plugging the organization, which is fine. Cause I, I'm, I think I'm happy to do that, but I, I, what, you know, I don't, I don't go to the, to the meeting um, from a scientific standpoint to learn a lot of new stuff, but because I mean, I think I I tap into um, the readily accessible journals, and and maybe I see some new stuff in posters. Um, but but I really try to tap into this idea of well, what's going on, and are there 
other other researchable questions or um, que- things out there that require some extension attention um, that I can maybe get out of it. And I think that I mean that's what what's been great about the doing the podcast and 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 that's kind of my goal. I, I, when I, you know, when I go to meetings is at least take something away that, um, that could turn into a, a project idea. But, um, but yeah, I, I hope I don't run out. I just, I'm, I'm always in fear of that, that it's, uh, like, um, like, uh, Don, Don Draper on, on Mad Men that I, that, you know, I, I will, I will cease to become relevant at some point. So I've got to, it's, maybe it's good to have that nervousness to spur, to spur you to do stuff. I, well, I, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of, uh, Don Draper and Mad Men, but, uh, there's a great song, um, uh, by the, the, uh, artist Dan Byrne, uh, entitled Tiger Woods, um, which is, which is about the, uh, the golf player, uh, uh Tiger Woods, but also it's about, about, it, it features a, a friend of his that, uh, peak too soon and i can't i can't really quote any of the lyrics um because they're entirely inappropriate for a non-explicit podcast but we will link to um we will link to uh the uh the song tiger woods have you have you ever speaking of popular culture and music have you ever heard anything by dan Byrne? no i don't know. uh we'll uh, we'll have to uh, get you a copy of uh of, of the album that that comes from and t- that song tiger woods is 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 great i mean if you if you like if you like that kind of thing and i i suspect i know enough about your musical taste i expect you that you will uh you will like it so we'll uh we'll get that we'll get that sent your way but it's it's a great song but like i said i can't i can't quote any um uh, i i can I, <laughs> I can't even read the first line of the song so it's awesome i will <laughs> look forward to it um, so uh, being that we uh, sidestepped a little bit into popular culture, um, I want to tell you about a documentary that I watched. Oh, okay. That was awesome. And it's called um, uh, Sound City. And it was uh, directed by Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. Sure. And, and it was about um, this the, – the first half of the documentary is all about this studio uh, in – I think it was in Burbank. Uh, California or might have been in Hollywood that was called Sound City and it was um, uh, a a place where a whole bunch of really uh, um, sort of notable records and artists recorded stuff. Uh, Neil Young, of course, um, recorded um, uh, After the Gold Rush there um and uh nirvana's nevermind was recorded there my my sort of genre of rock and roll uh rage against the machine their self-titled album was was recorded there uh fleetwood mac most of their albums were recorded there and anyway um that so they kind of he kind of interviewed a a bunch of artists who had gone through and, and just sort of talked about sound city the studio but the 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 whole thing behind this documentary was there was a soundboard at this studio, a Neve sound soundboard, and Neve is the last name of a, a sound uh, engineering um, professor at uh, somewhere in the UK, Cambridge maybe, who created these custom-made soundboards. And I don't know anything about soundboards or music, but it, whatever it was, it was the uh, it was there were only four of them that were operational um in the 70s and it was the one like everyone wanted to go to the studio and it was kind of like a dump and a, a you know a, a, a crap hole um except uh it had this neve soundboard so anyway dave Grohl, when they're um uh shutting down the studio bought the soundboard and then wanted to make a bunch of music with it and so he had paul mccartney and uh um 
Stevie Nicks and Rick Springfield. And I guess like some of the stuff, I'm not a big Fleetwood Mac fan and, or Rick Springfield fan, but it was kind of cool. So anyway, that the documentary was great. And there's also a soundtrack that I've been listening to a lot called Sound City Real to Real, which is all new music that Dave wrote with all these individuals, uh, you know, about, um, not about, but sort of inspired by using this Neve soundboard. So it was cool. Check it out. It was it was a really great documentary. Yeah, very good. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes and and kudos to Dave Grohl for making a web page, um, which is about a documentary about music, but you know no music when you load the page. So, oh, <laughs> well done, Dave. <laughs> I wanted to note as well. What I really loved about the documentary was that it was shot in landscape, <laughs> <laughs> not portrait. That's really what it was. What, what drew me to it. So. Um, yeah, so check. It's, it's it's very awesome. Excellent. Well, while we're while we're talking about popular culture, I have one more one more thing, and then uh, and then maybe we can do uh, bug trivia. Um, and this is a movie that we were watching on Netflix, um, and it made me it made me think of uh, I don't know if he's a friend of the show, but certainly a friend of ours, Doug Doug Powell, who's currently based in Australia. And it's a movie called Muriel's Wedding, and it was put out in uh, 1994. Um, and it, again, uh, coming back to the music theme, um, uh, it features the music of ABBA, which which is I'm not particularly a fan of, fan of but it, it it features this woman i'll read to you from the imdb um uh, entry it says muriel finds life in porpoise spit australia dull and spends her days alone in her room listening to abba music and dreaming of her wedding day um slight problem muriel has never had a date um and it's just it's one of these you know kind of weird quirky uh, oddball movies about weird, quirky, oddball people from this weird little backwater in in Australia. But it was just a delightful, a delightful little movie. And of course, I, I thought I was going to share this with Doug um, and expose him to Australian uh, popular culture. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I already was a fan of that movie, and Amy was a fan of that movie. In fact, we were fans of that movie before we even met each other and moved to Australia. So it's like, well, anyway, I, I felt good that I shared it with him and he liked it, but I felt bad that uh, he already knew about it. But anyway, and the, and then. He talked about how he doesn't like ABBA, but but his his preferred genre from that time time frame uh, in terms of musical genre would be the Rolling Stones from sixty eight to seventy two. So anyway, uh, a little, little little bit of popular uh, culture uh, relative to Australia. So again, if uh, if you've never heard of the movie and you like quirky movies about quirky people, um, check it out. Uh, it's it's on it's on Netflix streaming, and it's a, it's a, it's a you you could do you could spend uh, you could spend an hour and a half in a lot worse ways. Yeah, Tony Collette of Little Miss Sunshine fame. I think that was her first like big movie, and uh, Rachel Griffiths from uh, Six Feet Under. So, yep. love love those. The, I, I, I'm a fan of that. That I'm a fan of that wedding is what I would. It's a good movie. And good. Yeah, glad that uh, glad that Doug uh, was able to respond to you. Have, have you have you um, uh, have you seen the movie? Yes. Yeah. So okay. Um, Don, I saw the movie in high school. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, and in fact, I've been a fan of this movie since long before I moved to Australia as well. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. You, I, I hadn't thought about that movie for a while. I, I definitely watched it a, um, uh, a while ago and, uh, and it's excellent. There's another, we'll talk about Australian movies for a second. There's another really great Australian movie that I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or not called the castle. Mm. Um, are you aware of that movie? I am not. Okay, so the castle is all about this family who lives in a house right at the end of an airport strip. 
Um, and all I remember about this movie was um, it's extremely funny uh, and made me think of everything that I've ever learned about Australia. So I can't, I won't go into any more plot details, but um, you should check out the castle. Okay, very, very good. Well, maybe I can find a link for it. Uh, well, yeah, well, I've, I've got a link to uh, the Wikipedia page to the movie, so we'll, uh, we'll share that with folks. Good stuff. Cool. Hey, let's, shall we do bug, bug trivia? We should. Uh, we should. And uh, uh, can we do Vibrio Parahemolyticus? But we can't start bug trivia until the bug trivia um, theme song goes, right? Like, right. Cue the, th- cue, cue the theme music. Click, click. Bug trivia. Doodly-loo. Doodly-loo. Bug trivia. <laughs> it gets better every time. It does. It does. So, so uh, Vibrio Parahemolyticus is in uh, our file, which is again provided by a friend of ours, Carl Custer. And we're actually we're actually running out of bugs to do bug trivia on. I think we are almost to the end of the list, so we're going to have to figure out a, a plan t- if we want to continue doing this segment of the show. We have there are more bugs that could be added, although uh, they're not in in Carl's list. So we have to we have to think about that. Um, I, have a, I have an idea. Sure. Yeah, I'll hold it until after we do it. After, okay. after yeah. Okay. Go, so, go. so, so, Vibrio parahemolyticus. So, uh, as Carl writes, Vibrio parahemolyticus is the other fastest growing bacterium, uh, and it comes uh, in the list uh, after Clostridium perfringens, which we've already talked about as being a very fast growing uh, microorganism. Um, uh, Carl writes that uh, it it at optimum temperatures the organism doubles in uh, number every seven minutes. Uh, it's common in many warm water marine arthropods such as shrimp and crabs. The first U.S. outbreak was in Maryland from steam crabs that had been returned to the basket that the live crabs came in. So again, your classic uh, cross contamination, not uh, off the grill, but uh, but but essentially the same the same sort of thing. So keep your keep your steam crabs out of the live crab basket is the uh, is the message there. Um, <clears throat> Vibrio parahemolyticus is also associated with oysters, as is its kissing cousin. And this is, again, Carl's, uh, Carl's uh, uh, description of uh, uh, microbial uh, taxonomy and mic- microbial genetics. So the kissing cousin of Vibrio parahemolyticus is Vibrio vulnificus. Um, and, and again, uh, here, uh, warm water is, is, is key. Um, if you've got to eat uh, raw oysters, eat only cold water oysters. That's the basic for the uh, only eat... Uh, seafood. Um, uh, don't eat seafood in months that don't have an R. I think that's the uh, that's the adage. And Carl adds personally, he'd also avoid September, October, and April, plus any oysters from the Gulf of Mexico unless they're steamed. And then he has some comment about being served by somebody wearing orange shorts. And I'm not really sure. That might be a Hooters reference. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Believe so. I, be- I believe that's a Hooters reference. Okay. Very good. Um, so so that that is uh, that is bug trivia. Bug trivia. Doodle loop. Bug trivia. Um so uh and did you did you pick uh, Vibrio parahemolyticus for any specific reason? Well, it was one of the few ones that we had left. <clears throat> we are getting into the definitely the warm months where uh, where Vibrio can be a problem. I think we talked about a number of episodes ago um, a paper that uh, I recently had published on uh, ceviche, uh, which is a dish that's made with uh, raw fish, where the fish is. Cooked, and I'm using uh, uh, air quotes there. Cooked uh, in, 
in lime juice. And, uh, and I think uh, that, that article, we talked about that article already, but that it's, so it, so it is an organism that we have, uh, we've worked with, uh, somewhat in, in my lab. And, uh, it definitely, the good news is from that article is that if your, uh, fish in this case is contaminated with the Vibrio parahemolyticus and you make ceviche out of it, at least according to our research, the lime juice will, uh, give you at least a five log reduction of Vibrio parahemolyticus. The bad news is, is that if you have other microorganisms on that fish, like salmonella, which, which might very well be there, the uh, lime juice does not do as good a job at killing that, and you only get about a one or a two log reduction of salmonella. Is there ceviche shellfish like oysters they they do yeah they do make ceviche from uh, shrimp but it is almost always or it is is always near as i can tell made from cooked shrimp so uh or they'll mix the shrimp and the fish where the fish is raw and the shrimp is cooked huh crazy um well maybe maybe a um ceviche ceviche of uh oysters would be uh would be worth looking at as a study, was this another idea? Um, just, just putting it out there. Just putting that out there. So here's my, uh, here, here's what, what I think we do after bug trivia is over. Okay. And I think you're going to love this. <laughs> um, for the uh, 100-year anniversary of IAFP, um, there was a really, really, and this, this uh, sort of uh, has something to do with Carl as well. Um, there's a really, really nice document, 104-page document um, about uh, the history of uh, food safety uh, that uh, was put together by a committee, an IFP committee. And I don't know if you were part of that, but I know Carl was, uh, was part of it because he and, he and I talked a little bit about this. And it's, I think we go, we reach into there and we pick some historic event. Uh, the th- you know, I'm looking right now, page 11, the 30s. Let's talk about food safety in the 30s. I, think, I mean, I think logically that's where we go because we need this segment. I I agree, and in fact, uh, I was not. I was involved in that committee in that I was part of the uh, the IAFP executive board at the time. We charged the committee, and again, as you as you may know, that that uh, committee was run uh, by a friend of the show, listener and friend of the show, Michelle Daniluk. Um, and so, I think that would be fantastic. I love that idea. We can start. I say we start at the beginning, um, at the at the first hundred years, and then we just work our way through a genesis. Yes, the Genesis Project. The gen- I think the, the gen- gen- chapter Genesis chapter one verse one of this uh, of this book. That's good. Um, <laughs> oh, Don, being silly today. Um, okay, well, let's do it. That's, I've I've already put it in here. Excellent. It's in the notes it says this is where we're done. Where we're gonna do when we're done with bug trivia. So uh, so let's talk about some new stuff. Sounds good. Um. There's a bunch of things here, but I want to start somewhere, which I'm glad that you uh, that you picked up and, and put in here yesterday, which is an article that was in uh, Food Safety News, um, Bill Marler's uh, publication, about a really kind of interesting um, bill, the farm, the North Carolina Farm Bill, and how um, there's a uh, stipulation, and stipulation is not the right word, there's a component of that bill um, that has to do with food safety. And um, so uh, it, it was covered uh, yesterday uh, in the food safety news. Yesterday, I shouldn't say that. Uh, July 15th, it was covered uh, in food safety news. And um, 
the the story goes states have farm bills too north carolina's 2013 edition shows that they can be significant senate bill 638 known as the nc farm bill of 2013 takes a big bite out of any potential food safety liability fruit and vegetable growers might face while giving more legal protection to those involved in equine and animal agriculture uh activities and um, I guess my, my comment is s- sort of what it says uh, in, in the bill and the bill has right, right now it's, it's passed our um, house and our Senate. Well, it passed the Senate first and the house and was voted um, overwhelmingly passed both uh, a bipartisan support. And um, what, what the bill actually um, says is there is, a, a, a producer has a rebuttable presumption of not being negligent uh, in, in an outbreak situation if they've had a USDA gap audit and they have a food safety plan. And um, there's some other sort of legalese in here that I don't um, – I don't understand, but I had, and even, in fact, I had to look up what rebuttable presumption was. Uh, and so I looked that up on Wikipedia and that means that the court makes an assumption basically that what it says is, um, instead of, if someone is brought uh, a farmer, a producer of a raw agricultural commodity is involved in a lawsuit, they're automatically believed to not be negligent. Um, but, um, the way that, Food Safety News covers it, it makes it sound like they're not, it's about liability, but negligent and and liable are are sort of two different things as as far as I understand from um, my reading of uh, other food safety laws. So, um, so what... There, there's a couple things that I that I kind of see here. So I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but basically is, it says what I what I kind of said was, um, uh, if if someone has passed an audit and it's actually very specific uh, uh, on you know a USDA agriculture marketing service, good agricultural practices, and good handling practice audit program, or another third party certification um, designated by the commissioner. Um, and then has a written food safety plan, then they fall into this. Um, and uh, it, it's they, they, it, so anyway, the, the the biggest thing that I take away from it is I think it's a pretty good vote getter, and I don't think it does anything um, at all. And so I think that um, if I was the commissioner of agriculture, and I've we, the commissioner and I have chatted a couple times about food safety, so I'm happy to call him uh, a, a colleague. I, I think he he was, uh, it, um, and he might not have been as instrumental in this as, as some of the other uh, senators that are in agriculture heavy um, counties or districts. But uh, I think they said, okay, you know, food uh, food safety has been um, something that as a producer you're not getting paid for, and in fact you're on the hook in case there if there is an outbreak, um, even. Um, you know, even if you didn't sell it, um, so we'll, we're going to throw this uh, uh, this bill together to to give you some protection. And I, I guess I don't think it gives anybody any protection. I think it it doesn't do a whole lot. But on the other hand, I think they're in the you know, law of unintended uh, law of unintended consequences side of things. If I was a retailer or a food service buyer, and I knew that that there was some extra protection towards producers in North Carolina, 
And that same protection did not was not afforded to a producer in, say, Virginia, and they were both selling the same commodity for the same price. And if I knew, you know, if, if it was a commodity um, that might be linked to foodborne illness, you know, some of our higher risk products, I might choose to not buy the North Carolina stuff because I whatever, even if it's kind of a, a, a mixed up um you know, protection that's not really protection. I don't want to get involved in that. I want to make sure that I'm buying from someone who we're all in this supply chain together. So if they uh, sell me something that's got contamination and I then in turn sell it, um, we're both you know, liable uh, for that. Um, and and I want to, you know, if I, if I was a retailer, that's what I would, I would want that. So I actually think that it's, um, it, it makes it, it uh, potentially, if, if a buyer looks at it that way, does a bit of a disservice to North Carolina producers um, specifically. I mean, and there's another thing here. I mean, I, I also find it kind of ridiculous that this, if you look at fresh fruits and vegetables and how they're grown and how um, the, you know, there's audits and inspection um, the similarities between, um, you know, the system at a restaurant. I mean, it's like saying, well, if a restaurant had, you know, their manager had served safe and they had an Ecolab audit or a Stereotech audit, um, then, you know, that's enough. They're not negligent anymore. Um, you know, they, they can't, we, there, there's no, we can't, um, expect them to, uh, uh, to have to do anything if someone gets sick. So, so I don't know. I, th- I mean, I just see there's a lot of stuff with this one. I'm glad, glad you put it in. As you can tell, I'm, I've thought a lot about this one. Yeah. Well, and I figured since it was a North Carolina farm bill that you might have some unique insight, but yeah. So I guess on uh, the troubles me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it troubles me if food safety news is really just kind of stirring things up unnecessarily, right? I mean, look at the headline, NC Farm Bill assumes growers are not to blame for food illnesses, right? So, and from your reading of it, it sounds like that's not really the case. Um, and it, yeah, it just, it just seems like, well, I, shouldn't, shouldn't the presumption be that if, that they're, you know, it's like the, the, I mean, again, and I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, but shouldn't the presumption be that they're innocent until proven guilty? Right. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know the whole, the whole thing just seems kind of needlessly. I mean, either, either they, they're negligent or they're not, and either they did the right thing or they didn't. And if there's, if people get sick and there's an investigation and it turns out that they were doing a lot of bad things, well, then they should be penalized for that. Right. I mean, it, it, I don't know. Yeah. And- the, you know what the the thing is I'm of, of of the mind of I think what what they're trying to do with this was say if someone gets sick and you did you followed all the best practices and someone still got sick then you did your part and it's not your responsibility and I disagree with that just you on, do yeah just on a philosophical um, reason because e- even though. Even though the be- I think the best practices that we have, especially for fresh fruits and vegetables, aren't detailed enough for anybody to um, to have any absolutes. I mean, it's not like pasteurization. It's not you know the, the 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 adage of well, there's no kill step in fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, that's the the whole point is well, I've got a food safety plan and I passed an audit at eighty percent, and sure there are some deficiencies, but I did everything that I could. It, you still sold a product that had salmonella in it, and, and to me, that like there, there's one thing that I really agree with with Bill Marler on is 
I've, you've got someone who has hospital bills and they ate a product assuming that there was um, no salmonella in it and you sold them something that had salmonella or you grew something and there was salmonella and it was traced, you know, this is where, where, where it was traced to your farm, then man, you gotta, someone's gotta be responsible for it. It can't, it, it can't fall on the person who bought it because if it did, we need to tell them a whole lot more information. Like, look, um, if you eat this and it's got salmonella on it, then you're responsible for it. And we can't tell you anything about whether we know, you know, cause we don't know whether it's, there's any salmonella on it or not. So I've, I mean, that's the part that I that philosophically, I um, it bothers me. Well, let me let me push back a little bit on that because so let's say let's put it from the perspective of, and I know you've worked with farmers some in your work, and I work with farmers some in the work that I do. Um, let's put it. Let's look at it from the perspective of the farmer. This is a person that is trying their very best to produce a food that is safe, and they can only do what is known to be you know, the, the best practices. And if they really are following best practices, what, what would you have had them do otherwise? Right. I mean, in other words, yeah, it's easy after the fact to say, well, you should have done this or you should have done that, or we think it was this, or we think it was that. But I mean, I feel for these guys and I want, I mean, is, is, isn't it, is it, isn't it reasonable to expect that they're going to do what are the current best practices? And if, and if they do, I mean, now granted, if you have somebody like peanut butter corporation of America, or you have, uh, the, the egg farm in Iowa where they're just clearly just, just doing bad stuff that they should definitely be held accountable for that. But if you have a farmer that's doing their very best and is trying hard and is following good agricultural practices, shouldn't that, cut them some slack now again maybe it's a matter of degree but shouldn't shouldn't there be shouldn't 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 there be something to protect them if they're if they're doing everything that we know scientifically and and justifiably that they can do sure i i mean i yeah but they still had the issue in like they still had the contamination in their product and I, and i guess that's the that's the risk of this this whole food business situation. They, they were doing everything that we have, um, that we know about in, in, in science. And, and maybe there's some gray areas. Let me, let's, let, here's a, a great example that's come up in the, um, the discussions we've had here in North Carolina around, uh, food safety modernization act, a gray area around frost protection on berries. So a common practice for us, um, here is, uh, it, at the flower stage, of um, uh, blueberries and, and strawberries, um, it, we may have that early on, maybe in March, where, where we are prone to some uh, some frost. Um, at that time, if, if uh, producers think that that's going to happen, then they're they're going to spray that that product with water uh, to protect it, or they may wrap it in uh, in, in some sort of uh, uh, crop fabric wrap. But but yeah, so they spray. It. So they spray it. There's no like edible portion of the fruit there. There's nothing, um, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a product or a commodity yet. And they spray that, uh, that bush, um, with, uh, with water that, uh, is, is agriculture water. It's, uh, maybe coming from a retention pond. Maybe it's coming from a stream. There's no like best practice on that. And in fact, it's not really even talked about in the, in the produce rule, um, it, it, it talks about applying edible portion of the fruit. So anyway, I'm a producer and I do that. Well, I, I guess the way that I look at, at the rules and the best practices is you can't look at every single situation and apply a best practice to it. 
But the blueberry industry or the blueberry producer probably needs to know themselves what their risk is on that. Having uh, making a decision uh, on it, you know, they're going to have to spray it. But um, at least having some data themselves on whether there was some salmonella in it or, or uh, contamination doesn't matter. Um, sort of what it is, and so I guess the what what where, where i see the the problem with the with this discussion is the best practices are too generic for me to say oh well you were following the best practices what what it really what it comes down to for me is it's your business the best practices tell you where you need to look but there's a whole lot of gray area questions that you kind of need to be part of the solution on and can't wait for um for it to be published in a peer-reviewed journal that, that you need to generate some data yourself on or work with your industry to do it to establish some some more specific best specific best practices. And so I guess that's that that that's where where you know where where some of it falls apart for me is sure that if you're following the best practices that are currently available, um, you might have some protection, but if those current practices or those current best practices don't really have information on what you're doing, then it's kind of your responsibility to figure that out before you do it, or or be part of figuring it out. I don't, you know, don't don't get me wrong on um, my my thought that uh, a producer needs to um, you know develop a validated study and 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 pay thousands of dollars, but but that's I mean that's got to be part of it. I guess my my issue is that the best practices documents just aren't good enough um, right now to for someone to fall back on that legally. I still think that that they've got to be responsible for selling something and the. And the, I mean, the law beyond this stuff, the 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 law that that I that I do support is is this idea, and where where Marler's made all of his money is is the idea of selling something that's got an adulterant on it, and and those pathogens should be adulterants uh, in a fresh produce standpoint. I mean, it's different in other uh, types of products, but I mean, it's a it's. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think where this comes up, if we move away from fresh produce even more, is this idea of um, O157 or S-Tex in beef versus salmonella in beef and where, where one's an adulterant and one isn't. Um, and it gets into this this sort of gray area, and I'm a fan of uh, of, of that that legal that sort of legal protection that a, that a consumer has. So hopefully you'll still do a podcast with me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm not, and I, and I, I, I think uh... – I, I agree with a lot of what you said, and yes. Yeah, so the the best practices and the good agricultural practices um, are a work in progress, and the science base isn't there yet. And you know, we've both been involved, you know, both have been and are involved in a number of projects that are working to try to enhance that science base and to make sure that we have that information. And on the one hand, yes, I can argue that if I'm going to apply water to a crop and I have some questions about the quality of that water, then I ought to be doing the work that needs to be done to to assess that. And and um and good for the folks in the industry that are doing that, good for the academics that are doing that, you know, thinking specifically about a specific colleague of ours who has been accused of trying to ruin the the XYZ industry in their state um because of publishing data on prevalence of pathogens in, in water, um, you know, that's sticking your head in the sand and trying to pretend that the problem is just going to go away. And that's just foolish. But 
On the other hand, looking at, you know, many of this, like the small farm operations we have in New Jersey, where these guys and, and gals don't have the technical expertise and don't necessarily know what to do. And, and we as, as researchers and as extension professionals don't really know what to tell them either. Those are the ones that I, that I really feel for. I mean, the big, the big, you know, farms that have, you know, that are, are, you know, multi-million dollar businesses that, that, you know, they, they, boy, if they get that much money on the line, they better invest a little bit into food safety. But, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said, but I still, I still worry about this, the small operations that, you know, that we just don't know what to tell them or, or we, we have to rely on telling them things that end up being very expensive, um, and, uh, unsure return on investment. So. Well, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I, I, I absolutely agree with it. And I think what we're, what we're talking about here is, is, is tough in both the outbreak investigation and science side of things is kind of these absolutes, like that, that there is one factor or one thing that, that happened or multiple failings that we're somehow going to buy, be able to identify that led to illnesses. I mean, look at, um, I think two, uh, podcasts ago, episode 43, we talked about, um, this, out, the, let me jump into restaurants, to give this an example, but this outbreak that happened at a restaurant in North Carolina in Fayetteville, uh, with the holiday Inn, and, um, you know, this is an outbreak that, that we know, that it was associated with the restaurant, you know, that, that that's clearly that people that ate there, um, there was a portion of them that got sick, um, through the, uh, post outbreak investigation, n- nothing egregious happened or was seen. You know, there was no, so if we, if we say that the food code or the regulation becomes the best practice, like on a farm in this situation, well, no one found anything. There weren't any factors that anybody could point to. I mean, there were certain things that could have been the issue, but nothing sort of goes to the top that says, man, these, these folks were doing something that was way out of the, um, you know, way, way out of the best practice or the regulation. And, and you got 120 people that are sick. Well, and obviously something happened. And, and, and so what, you know, I guess it, in the situation, if you put that into a, a farm aspect of, well, we know that people ate, um, you know, strawberries, cantaloupes, sweet potatoes, you know, whatever the commodity is. And we know that they all got sick from eating that, that product and it all came from you, you know, and, and it was shipped to multiple places across the U S and the, the outbreak is, is national. So we know that it's not got anything to do with, um, preparation on site or, um, in, in a wholesaler, cause it went through different channels, whatever it is, we know, it, we know it comes back to you then how, you know, and, and you did everything you, you, I mean, you, you've got documentation that you were doing everything right. Then, I mean, what do we do in a situation like that? Um, there's no, there's no protection, but, but someone, I mean, I guess this is the, 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 the lawyer friend part of me that says, you know, we've got people that are sick that, that have hospital bills and none of them thought that that cantaloupe or sweet potato or lettuce was going to make them sick. And now they, now they're stuck with this. So how do we, um, how do we rectify that, that injury? Right, right. And, and yeah, and I, 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 and maybe the way that you parse the differences is you say, well, okay, so, you know, this, 
farm is responsible or this restaurant is responsible and that they need to cover the the medical bills but because they didn't do anything wrong or because we can't we can't find anything specifically that they did wrong that might have caused the outbreak you know maybe there's no pain and suffering component right so as opposed to somebody who's just really truly negligent where you you need to send a clear message that this kind of behavior is not acceptable so yeah i would vote for that whatever you just what you just said i'm <laughs> Let's let's do it. Let's uh, the committee of uh, food safety talk. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Unanimous vote. <laughs> maybe we can maybe we can uh, get the, uh, the the North Carolina Farm Bill to include that. Yes, well, I mean, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I hear you know the uh, commissioner. Yeah, we go back. We're uh, we're I, I'm not I'm not uh, not afraid to call him Steve. <laughs> is that really his name? It's, it is. It's I'm not afraid to call him by his name. <laughs> I am afraid to call him, you know, Roddy. Right, because that wouldn't be his name. You also wouldn't answer to it, probably, or whatever uh, his nickname is. So, anyway, thanks for putting that in the notes because it's. I mean, it's- well, good. Um, I'm, I'm good. I think we had a we had a good uh, we had a good chat about that. Um, what would you like to talk about now? A couple of days ago, there was a uh, uh, press release um, that came out uh, detailing a, a paper. Um, that came from one of our, our colleagues, uh, Kathy Cutter, uh, at, uh, Penn state about raw whole chickens and, uh, press releases about this paper that was published in, let me get that information out. I think do, um, journal of food safety. Yep. Um, and, and so anyway, Kathy's, uh, group and, and I say Kathy is actually, um, a uh, couple of uh, uh, graduate students, Joshua Scheinberg, uh, Stephanie Doors, and Kathy uh, published this. Um, sorry. Stephanie uh, Doors is not a graduate student. She's a faculty member at Penn State. Good. Uh, Stephanie Doors is not a faculty. She's I, and a uh, friend of the show, Stephanie Doors. <laughs> Does she listen? I don't know. I don't <laughs> I hope. I want to Stephanie for that not graduate students are bad just not recognize i you know i'm not afraid to call stephanie steve (laughs) (laughs) oh damn Oh dear, yes. Yeah. So, so for those that are following along closely, uh, Ben is referencing the fact that I have a new follower on Twitter uh, named Steph, who apparently is a, a, a woman, uh, and I thought her name was Steve. Um, and she also had a very disturbing uh, Twitter icon, which was basically a, a photograph of her, the mouth of her dog with the dog's tongue hanging out. Um, uh, anyway, so I made a new friend on Twitter, despite the fact that I called her Steve when, uh, or for her as him when her name was actually Steph. And, and just like my friend, Steve Troxler, who I'm also not afraid to call Steve. Steve. <laughs> so anyway, um, th- this study I thought was really, um, really well, well done, um, from a design standpoint, uh, uh, Basically, uh, the group went out and bought uh, chickens from farmers markets and uh, also uh, chickens from retail stores and com- uh, compared um, prevalence uh, of Salmonella and Campylobacter and also rates um, and uh, looked at. I mean, for me, one really cool thing from a farmers market standpoint: uh, this idea of whether um, 
you know, intuitively something like Campylobacter, which is not uh, all that hardy and doesn't uh, do well when it comes to freezing, whether freezing that that uh, poultry at a, for someone who's selling it at a farmer's market as a control step can do anything to reduce uh, rates. And and so, I mean, I thought that was uh, that was pretty cool stuff. Um, now, what what has you know? That's what I focused on, I guess, when I saw the the paper. Where the the discussion online has gone, and I've, I've seen this in a couple of listservs that I'm a member of, is um, what you note here in our show notes. Of the whole 100 whole chickens purchased from farmer's markets, 90% tested positive from Campylobacter and 28% harbored salmonella. And so what's kind of taken off is um, that – Oh my gosh! There's a ton of Campylobacter at farmers markets, um, and there's you know almost everything in a farmers market uh, is is contaminated, or almost all poultry is contaminated. And man, there's a lot of salmonella as well. Um, although um, they also looked at sort of this idea of um, uh, organically processed uh, versus um, conventionally processed. Uh, Poultry and saw that there was no significant difference uh, in salmonella, which is kind of interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so there was something else, and I don't think I put put it in this barf blog post, but basically it showed that um, I think if I look, think back to the article and I'll um, click on it right now, that there was a relatively little difference between the fresh chicken at grocery stores compared to the farmer's markets, but I might be wrong on that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is a, this is a nice study and, and, and in, 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 in many ways it's, 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 a, it's very, they did, they did a nice job in doing it the way that they did because they, they collected, first of all, they collected enough samples so they can see a reasonable difference. They, because Pennsylvania is uh, a state where uh, they have supermarkets and they have farmers markets, they were able to do admittedly a geographically focused sample, but still relevant, I think, to the rest of the world. Um, and they pick, they pick chicken, which we know has Campylobacter and which we know has Salmonella. So they were able to use two different measures of the safety of, of the chicken. Now, again, granted, this is raw chicken and you're supposed to cook it. Uh, uh, and so, you know, the fact that there's pathogens there maybe is not relevant to food safety if you're going to properly cook it. But at the same time, it does, it does kind of it, it, it taps into an issue that I think a lot of people are interested in, which is this idea of eating locally and shopping at farmers markets, and and then looking at the 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 idea of organic and 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 conventionally produced chicken. And so, really, with I'm sure it was a significant amount of effort. I mean, obviously, a whole a graduate student got their uh, got their degree based on this work, but it really is a very. I mean, it's it's almost head slappingly simple in terms of the experimental design, and, and no matter what you find, I mean, I always like the idea that if, when you go into a study, no matter what you find, it's going to be interesting. And they've they've got there's there's really some very interest there's some very interesting things here, and there's some some interesting nuances here about looking at well, okay, so farmers markets are at a higher risk of Campylobacter. It looks like like the risk of salmonella is maybe the same. I mean, it's just it's just a, it's just really a nice, clever little piece of work. And and again, kudos to to Stephanie and uh, and to Kathy and to the graduate student Josh for uh, for figuring this out and, and doing this work. 
Well, and I, I mean, I think you just brought up the the exact point that I took away from it was this idea that yeah, so there's more Campylobacter at farmers markets than there is in, um, in in grocery stores, and Salmonella is about the same. But hey, look, we can do something about Campylobacter. We can freeze it. And, uh, you know, we can freeze that, that poultry prior to, to, sir, to selling it. And that's going to likely, in this case, um, reduce the, the, that, that contamination rate at least and, and uh, p- potentially reduce the risk. And I just thought that was – I mean, I'm, I agree with you. you, you like the, the fact – the way that it's set up, simple's not a, um, a negative at all. In fact, I gave this to – I gave this paper when it, when it came out um, uh, to uh, – a couple of you know intern folks that I've got working for me this summer uh, on projects with regards to surveys, like you know surveys in the you know qualitative side of things. We're working with um, uh, restaurant servers uh, specifically, and I, and I gave it to to this undergraduate um, uh, guy James, who's who's been a really great um, student to have around this summer. And I said, you know, you're designing your survey you need to look at how they designed this survey, this microbiological survey. So I gave him the paper and he goes, they didn't talk to anybody. He read it and came back to me and I said, no, they didn't. But man, they, this is exactly how, when you want to do a comparison of, um, uh, you know, of events, uh, or a comparison of, of how things are treated, um, and look at a phenomenon. It is, it is so well designed and it's not real complicated, this is the way that we should be doing our, you know, our, our survey work. No, you know, you know, not microbiological survey, but survey work should look like this. <laughs> it's just a great, it's, it's a really good paper. Yeah, absolutely. A simple, good, awesome, fun paper. Yeah, and 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 again, it, it, it like I said, it taps into the idea that um, you know farmers markets are food are inherently better and safer, and it and it kind of it kind of spins that in in a way that I think is useful. It says, well, no, not necess- not necessarily in all cases are they are they safer. And again, and again, it does it does and it does does show that you know there's risk there's risk everywhere. But anyway, just uh, yeah, just a really really nice nice piece of work, and it does seem to be getting a fair bit of press coverage. I've seen it pop up uh, in a couple of different locations um so that's so that's that's good yeah totally uh so where do you want to go oh um let's uh well we should we should talk about uh uh, we should talk about this uh wonderful thing that uh andreas uh shared with us which is a uh a link to uh gizmodo um and the um the, the headline is a raw chicken hand towel is so gross and so clever um, and the the, uh, the Gizmodo post reads, uh, scariest thing in your kitchen besides maybe the biggest, sharpest knives is chicken juice. Ain't nobody want salmonella. And what better way to have fun with that fear than by having a hand towel that looks eerily similar to a slimy raw chicken carpet, car- uh, carcass. Yes, just rub this on your hands and everything will be fine. And so... On the one hand, um, thanks to Andreas for sharing this this cool Gizmodo link to us, but... It is also very interesting to me because of um, reading the comments. And I think that the comments on – if you look at the comments on a web page like Gizmodo, to me, this is kind of in part – our target demographic, right? So people that are re- reading Gizmodo are nerds. People that are reading about a uh, chicken-shaped hand towel are maybe nerds that are interested in food safety. So, it, so this is, in in some ways, is the audience that we are uh, are trying to tap into. And there were 
a couple of comments that were posted that I responded to, and I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think my my comments have have showed up yet. But I want to read the comments and then try to reconstruct my response to those comments because I think this does show the the kind of mindset out there with respect to food safety, where where what we're doing here on this podcast can make a difference. Um, so uh, one, one comment uh, reads, chicken processed in the U.S. is not really so dangerous as we think. Uh, this, the commenter writes, I have associates who manage chicken processing plants and outgoing cultures show there's no real concern for bacteria propagation from chicken juices in your kitchen, about as dangerous as raw eggs. And my response to that was something like, well, um, no, you're wrong. <laughs> um, and and, and I, I linked to, uh, in my response, I linked to USDA FSIS data on salmonella in raw chicken. And in fact, it's orders of magnitude worse than raw eggs. Um, so I don't know where this person was getting their message, their information from, I guess from associates who manage chicken processing plants, but it's just flat out wrong. Um, and, and I'm a little, I'm a little irked that my response to that uh, doesn't seem to have appeared on the, uh, uh, on the webpage. And then uh, somebody else writes, um, uh, ha ha, even if you got salmonella, it would probably just be a day or four of watery diarrhea and abdominal cramps, not the end of the world. People are occasionally hospitalized for dehydration. And of course, my response to that is, well, actually, no, people do die from salmonella. And if you go, I mean, not not a lot. And, and again, granted, most of the time it is, as this person is describing. But But to me, both of these comments are presented from the perspective of, hey, I'm smart and I know about this stuff, um, but yet at the same time, they're 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 wrong. I mean, they're just they're just they're just flat out wrong, and they need to be they need to be corrected. And, and Ben, I think we're the guys to do it. But if uh, if it's if if the if Gizmodo is not letting me respond or it's not showing my responses, I'm I'm a little concerned that I'm I'm not able to do my job as an educator. Well, um, I, I did. I was able to click on the comment field and saw that one of your responses did make it. Okay, that people die from salmonella too. Um, and uh, oh, I, I see. I, I now see that that is there. Yes. My favorite was this one. Um, I'm a doctor who has seen plenty of patients with salmonella poisoning. It's not a big deal. And any and Eric Limer is none of those things. <laughs> yeah. So if we've got. I mean. Hey, discussion is good. Um, obviously, we're always right. Um, and so we'll have to be able to uh, reconcile that um, a little bit. No, I, I, I'm, I'm joking a little on that. But, I mean, yeah, there, there's the, the, the best thing about the Internet is that everyone can contribute. And the worst thing about the Internet is that everyone I'm- can contribute. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I do like this one response to my response, which says that 150 people a year are killed by coconuts. Um, uh, again, I, I, there's a link there, but I think it's the link to the the, the thing about influenza deaths. Um, I'd like to see the citation on the number of people that are killed by coconuts myself personally. But Right. Well, and you know what? What's the best practice? Don't sit under a coconut tree. Right. <laughs> you don't want to get killed by coconuts? Don't do that. <laughs> Don't yeah. What anyway? Um, uh, but but um, uh, more importantly is I look forward to actually getting one of these chicken hand towels. I would like someone from the uh, Alt Group New Zealand designers because uh, friends of the show uh, Alt Group 
uh, to send us uh, a couple of these uh, chicken towels. And I would use. And in fact, they should sponsor the podcast. Oh, hey, um, speaking of which, this goes with our follow up from Aaron Owe Sugi, ghee, like the Indian, like Indian clarified butter that he mentioned. I don't know if he um, if well, I'm going to I'm going to mention it uh, anyway. And he he probably won't get in trouble. But he said that um, although he can't. Uh, sponsor of the show, he can provide me with some Tassimo teacups because the company that he works for happens to also make those. Um, uh, and so uh, he said he would bring me some. So anyway, that's like that's as that's as good as sponsoring the show, Aaron. Owe Sugi. Uwe Sugi. Uwe. Yusugi. Aaron. Aaron. As he's known. You know what? I think just. Indian clarified butter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, oh, there was something else I wanted to talk about. Exploding pickles? I do, but I don't want to get it. I haven't written anything on it. Well, let's okay. talk about exploding pickles. No, we don't have to. We can talk about something else. I'm just... Uh... I wanted to get to... What was it? Oh, chicken. It was staying with the chicken. Yeah. It's, it's right at the top. Um... Uh, big outbreak of Salmonella Heidelberg, uh, linked to uh, one single poultry producer, 13 states, from 2012 to 2013. And so this is a, uh, uh article that was in MMWR last week. Um, Oregon Health Authority, note, the infamous um, uh, Foodborne Epidemiologist Extraordinaires group, uh, Bill Keene. Bill Keen. Um, uh, in the Washington State Department of Health, noted an increase of numbers of Salmonella enterica serotype Heidelberg, um, and this exact same pattern was linked to chicken from Foster Farms uh, in the Washington State uh, or by Washington State Department of Health back in 2004. Um, and uh, preliminary interviews said that they had also uh, in you know for this current outbreak or the outbreak that. Um, uh, that recently ended, uh, said that uh, infected people also uh, ate the Foster Farms chicken. And, um, and, and yeah, so the, the cool part about this uh, outbreak was that it was um, a standard epidemiological laboratory data as long, along with patient shopper card purchase information um, and uh, PFG data from a retail meat component of the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring Service or system um, basically cracked this outbreak open. And I guess, so I got a couple of questions for you. Or, well, one, one comment. One is, um, it's great. I, I mean, I think we're seeing more and more of these, uh, as it's put in MMWR, multifaceted investigations where you've got your case control study plus some other sort of data source and then this idea of uh, shopper cards and uh, the um, big brother tracking uh, component to be able to say, yep, you know what? You did purchase this uh, and we can now uh, contact all the people that purchased it and see if they're experiencing any symptoms or if they've reported anything to a healthcare provider. That's item number one. Number two is how does this happen, Don? How do you think like um, – not how do people get sick from chicken, but what what makes the 2004 outbreak and the 2012 outbreak happen um, with regards to Foster Farms? You know, is it something in the pre-harvest situation uh, for the the chickens? I assume that there's some you know contracted uh, chicken production. Is it a um, and, and that 
you know, that, that there's some, uh, um, th- this pattern is circulating within their system, uh, uh, on the production side. What, you know, and, and I guess the, the other thing is what, why do we, why do we see an outbreak? You know, what's different? Is it just the rate is so much higher? Um, or is, is this, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, or is this, um, a particular pattern as it's come up twice, um, is, is more virulent or, or whatever. I mean, what do you, what do you think from a, from a purely food microbiologist standpoint, why do we, what, what is this, what's all about? Well, you know, what's missing from this whole thing, and I've been quickly scanning the MMWR article for any kind of a hint, and I'll read to you one, one sentence that I think is, it could, it is an explanation for what's missing here. Quote, as part of this investigation, USDA FSIS sent an incident investigation team to one Foster Farms slaughter establishment. The results of that investigation have not been finalized. What's missing from this is any kind of input from USDA FSIS or from the Foster Farms um, uh, Corporation, right? I mean, they are integrally involved in this. This is, this really just is, I mean, this article is really just the CDC perspective. It's got the, the NARMS, uh, data. Um, but, but it's, but, and it's got the shoppers club, you know, data in there as well. But it, what's missing is any kind of, any kind of involvement from the industry. And, and that to me is, is a shame because they know a heck of a lot about their operation and maybe because their lawyers are advising them or because they're, they don't want to be criticized. They're, they're not out in front in, in public on this, but they ought to be right. I mean, the question is, were there any indicators? Were there any, is there any data that they can look at within their operation that would give an indication of this potential problem? And, and it's, completely silent. There's, there's no information. So we don't, we don't know if there were indicators. We don't know if there were no indicators. Um, and without that engagement on the part of the industry, um, we just don't, we just don't know. Um, I mean, something, if you look at, if you look at the epidemiological curves, right? If you look at the, the, the figure two and figure three in the text, you can see that the clinical isolates that match the outbreak strain versus the five-year baseline are, are way higher. So clearly there's, there's a signal there, right? There's a, there's a signal that PulseNet is seeing that says that something is going on and that's something, whatever that something was that was going on, it started in about May of 2012. It continued through the, basically that uh, second half of 2012 from May all the way through December. And then you're kind of back down around the baseline, but something happened during those three months of 2012 that were unique. And I, I can't help but imagine that there had to have been something unique that was going on in that, um, in that establishment or in those establishments. So, um, but we don't know. We just we have no, we have no information. Now I suppose we could figure out the sl- where the slaughter plants were, we could go to USDA and we could file a Freedom of Information Act request and we could get all of the inspection data and all of the government data that, that, that were available for that. And then we could begin to start to try to do an analysis. Um, but short of that, all we can do is sit here on the podcast and speculate and, and maybe rant a little bit about the company for not um, – providing any kind of information. 
Well, your your comment brings up two things for me. One is, but Don, food safety is not competitive, right? <sighs> well, if you if you read Barf Blog, Doug, Doug oh. sure seems to think people ought to be competing. Right, right, exactly, and that's that's fine. Um, but you know, this—I mean—I think this is a, a clearly an indication of well, there are certain things that we're going to share, and certain things we're not going to share. And all of our internal sampling data is something that we don't think we don't think is in, important enough to to make public because we're you know we don't think someone can can learn from it or or whatever. Which it, or, and really, we don't want to release that information um, for us looking bad. Which um, would you know, uh, there are problems with that. Well, plus plus it's really complicated and people wouldn't understand it and they take it the wrong way. Sure. So we have to do a better job trying to bridge that. But right by 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 telling people nothing. Right. Right. <laughs> they won't get it. Um, the, the second thing is, you know, how, how interesting is this, uh, uh, you know, coming back to that, that comment of, um, salmonella and, um, an adulterant versus not, you know, 0157 or, or Aztecs, like had, if there is stuff in FSIS about, um, you know, salmonella and, uh, on poultry and no illnesses, and it's like, well, it's not a big deal. And then all of a sudden that same, uh, pattern, popping up and there are illnesses well what's different that's the stuff that i think you know is is really interesting um uh for me like what is what what did it what what tipped that over so well and if we had if we had some sort of a a risk model which basically looked at let's say modeling um poultry distribu if we knew something about how poultry is distributed if we knew something about how people handle this because this this is all stuff that was cooked in people's homes, right? So if we had some information about how people handle poultry in their home, we looked at cross-contamination and the cooking effectiveness, what we could do is to kind of build that risk model and then and then uh, set the prevalence and concentration of pathogens in such a way that it basically produced a low number of cases. And then we could tweak the model and say, well, what happened if we double prevalence or we triple or quadruple prevalence? Or what happens if we if we increase the concentration and then look at what, what that would do um, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of driving risk, uh, you know, and one of the things that we've seen with with Campylobacter, we haven't seen the case control studies with Salmonella, but in the case control studies we've seen with Campylobacter, handling raw chicken, you know, uh, or, or preparing raw chicken does seem to be a risk factor, independent of any um, uh, independent of any aberrant cooking practices, right? So it's just cross, apparently cross-contamination in the kitchen. And so uh, if, you, if you could do those case control studies for salmonella and say, okay, so what, obviously this particular product is a risk factor, but what about, what about, let's, so let's, let's find people that consume this Foster Farms chicken product and then let's, let's look at those that did get sick and those that didn't get sick and try to figure out what the, the practices are, what, what are the risk factors from, you know, some sort of a case control control study, what are the risk factors that might, that might drive risk for those people that got sick? And that might give us some indications of, you know, what factors would be important in our, in our risk model. I'd like to do some of that work, Don. <laughs> I, I would too. Somebody should drop, drop a boatload of money on me and, and I'll do it. Yeah. I, would, <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun to look at that. Cause I think we're, we're missing a lot of that, that handling data. And, and we, I mean, we've been talking about um, on this this Aztec project, um, I think I mentioned it to you on maybe it was on the last podcast, or maybe it was when we were talking about um, working with uh, Dan Gallagher at Virginia Tech on yep. um, on some stuff. And, and 
it, for the the scope of this project that you know that we've got and the model that that he's working on is really focused on temperature, not not handling and cross contamination. It's it's about I mean time temperature um, and, and how that impacts the um, the final product and and because I, you know I think when when the project was written. It, it, um, the cross contamination aspect of things was was kept out on purpose because it would be too complicated and too not too complicated but would, for the amount of money that was available we had to pick one basically um to do it so but i think it's it's missing that that whole transfer cross contamination aspect around um beef and then in in this case around uh, around poultry um in uh, in homes we just we really don't know a whole lot about it um to to even plug in good you know numbers into the into the model so i would i would like to do that i'm going to volunteer for that right now <laughs> good good yeah and i thought you know I, I mean my gut feeling is, and i'm i'm biased because we do research on on cross-contamination but my gut feeling is that cross-contamination does does play a role here um i mean i suppose undercooking plays a role too i haven't i mean i haven't seen I haven't really looked, but I haven't seen any data on to what degree people undercook chicken. Um, we know with hamburger, people do like a rare, uh, rare hamburger, and so there is a, there there's definitely a risk there. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know to what extent people undercook chicken. I suspect not, certainly not as much. That would be my guess. Like just from a quality standpoint, that yep. it's, it, it is not as palatable um, as an undercooked burger is, which can. As I'm told, it could be quite juicy and tasty. Right. <laughs> I'm not like it sounded really like facetiously, but no, I don't. I've never had one, so. But it, I kind of made it sound like you know. So I've been told. Right. Um. Anyway, that was that was good. Um. So I know you've got you got something going on. Um. Not is it soon? Right. Is it, I, I have right? a teleconference in one hour. Okay. Um. I uh, I have some assignments that I need to grade. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to say you have some assignments that, to give me. <laughs> oh, no, no assignments. We haven't done homework for a while, have we? <laughs> no. What happened to that? We we'll put that follow-up for next time. Yeah, I, I am way behind on my, my newsroom watching. You know, I've gone back to watch all of it now since you, you were doing it. So I've, I, I started at – I watched seasons two and three and Escape from the Newsroom, the movie, and then now I'm about halfway through season one. Um, and I love it more and more. And I, I have more. Once you finish it, I have the. I think I told you that the that um, Ken Finkelman, the, the writer director, um, continues his uh, character George Finley in in two other more current uh, um, uh, reincarnations uh, with another newsroom, but also one where he is a um, writer, a screenplay writer, and has a very young girlfriend who has a big dog. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Good Dog. And then the second version of uh, him in back in a newsroom is uh, with the equivalent of Fox News Canada. Um, and uh, it's called Good God. Um, so anyway, once you're done the newsroom, I will provide you with uh, um, w- with those uh, as a source. I will source them for you. Thank you. So anyway, what I'm I guess what I'm saying is I think I need to call it a. I got. We got to call it a day here. I, yeah. Well, we've been talking for an hour and a half. We covered a lot of good stuff. Uh, I think it's time to call it a show. Absolutely. Well, um, 
Uh, we haven't mentioned iTunes, but uh, if you uh, are listening to us, um, you've probably downloaded uh, this podcast through iTunes or you downloaded it um, through uh, – or you may be listening to it directly on our Squarespace, uh, foodsafetytalk.com um, uh, website. Uh, uh, please uh, provide us any feedback on either the website or through iTunes and the reviews section, uh, and uh, we'll do our best. We'll, we will definitely read it. I mean, I'm not going to say we won't read it. We'll do our best to take your feedback and um, and, and adjust uh, what we're doing or not. So, uh, but do rate us uh, uh, if you can, uh, even if it's poor. The more ratings that we get, uh, the more relevant we become in the iTunes algorithm. Uh, so that means people may stumble across us. And- right, and and I have to say, I did a little bit of uh, uh, playing around with iTunes. If you ter- if you search for food safety talk, um, we're the number one hit. If you search for food safety, we're not the number one hit. So uh, so our fans have work to do. Yeah, get us up, get us to number one in the food safety search. At least get us above some of those government uh, those government uh, podcasts. Who, do you think they make it? I mean, I'm not a government employee, so I don't know what the kind of you know, reach they have. But do you think they just make all of their employees download it to increase their relevance and rate it? Maybe that's what we need. <laughs> we need employees? Government employees. <laughs> uh, anyway, Don, uh, great to uh, talk to you. I'm actually going to see you in uh, just over a week. Yeah, this is going to be exciting. We're going to have to actually talk to each other face-to-face in person without microphones and with eye contact. We'll see. We'll see if we we, – we don't have to do that. That's true. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, great, uh, great show, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye. All right. It's nice. Um, so I'm on iTunes now. I always, like, at that time of the show, I always try to go find if anybody said anything nice about us. Or, that's, that's a good idea. Uh, but I haven't looked yet. But what is coming up on my iTunes is that Pearl Jam has a new album coming out, and I'm very excited about it. Well, that's good. Um, yeah. Um, food sa- yeah, food safety. We're not even uh, iTunes. Yeah. I thought we were doing better than that. but We were up. Oh, we're four. Oh, okay. That's not bad. You know who's beating us, though? Goddamn Carl uh, Winter. <laughs> the doctor. <sighs> so annoying. 
Oh man, he's you know. I guess we're just we're not not still fourteen, fourteen stars. No one's uh, no one's rated us or anything since uh, April. So, um, Carl, 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 who's he got on here? Let's see, I don't know if it'll play. You, oh, I lost it. Oh, there you go. What's his new his uh, most recent album? Uh, Two thousand and eight. Uh, 2008. That, how can how can he be beating us from 2008? Uh, video. That's what it is. Veggie oh. Beaver. A, a spin on the monkeys. I'm a believer. There you go. I'm a ve- veggie believer. Uh, stomach ache tonight. <laughs> he is very clever. It's good. It's good. Um, you better wash your hands. This one takes a little bit of uh, uh, figuring out. It is. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Uh, Microbes, they might kill you. We are the microbes. Medley. Uh, we will rock you and we are the champions. Don't get sicky with it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get sicky with it. Oh, come on now. We're, there's a dog food safety podcast that's ranked above us. <laughs> don't be a gambler, which is based on the gambler. I don't know about that one. There's a dog food? No, I don't have a dog one above us. Oh, okay. Well, you must have a different... So, yeah. Anyway, it depends on how you search, but... No, but FDA is above us. I'm eating some nuts now. I'm, I'm, I'm eating, I'm eating my, my, uh, my lunch now, too. What are you having for lunch? Um, it's uh, risotto mm. with garlic and tomatoes. Kristen, Kristen brought me lunch and awesome. brought it up to me. It's very nice. Mm. I've been... It's very good. I think people love it when we eat on the show. For sure. I bought new skates. It's <laughs> <laughs> Apropos nothing? No, no, no. So this is a deal. So this actually matters into why I'm eating right now. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I kind of like to do for my creative, like, juices and keeps me going, mm-hmm. that I don't typically bring a lunch to my office because I like to go eat lunch out, all like, every oh, day. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. I like to go... There's a couple of restaurants close by, a little nice Mediterranean place like that's very close to my office, and I can go get hummus and really good stuff. But I bought $450 hockey skates, <laughs> which meant Danny and I had to have a discussion on what I was going to cut back to like before I purchased them, mm-hmm. how, how we would be able to afford these new skates and mm-hmm. be bringing my lunch. Ah. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm doing. So I had. So how many days do you have to bring your lunch before you paid for hockey skates? I'm not sure, but the deal that we cut, I don't know what the, the actual calculation is. deal we cut was July and August. Mm. So um, so I can do that. And also, there was a limitation, and but there are two things. There, there are two purchases that come with this uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was these skates, which I've already purchased. At the end, I don't know, like we have some odd contract going on. <laughs> We have we have two we we have two satellite dishes like one Directv and then I have a, a Canadian satellite dish uh-huh. um, and it is currently broke not broken but it's out of like and someone needs to go up and fix it mm. and I tried to do that myself and I could not do it and I made it worse oh so now I need to call somebody and it's like two hundred dollar kind mm. of it's like our you know tertiary viewing and it's mm-hmm. only necessary during hockey season anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, um, in September, I'm allowed to call somebody to fix it, <laughs> fulfill my 
lunch. And um, oh, and there, the other stipulation was limiting my um, uh, Starbucks mm. to uh, fifty dollars over the two months. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. And so you know what? I here, here's how I've dealt with it. Um, I've not been buying lattes. I've been mm. buying regular coffee. Um, like alternating and not going as much every day, and I'm I'm making my own more. Anyway, it's two months. I think I can do it. Well, what I what I do is I get a a regular coffee, and then I go back and get a refill. And because I have a gold card, the refill is free. So that's good. But now they've started this uh, uh, treat receipt thing, so I have to debate whether I'm going to pay two dollars and get a fancy drink. But uh, the first day was yesterday, and I uh, I went, just went ahead and got an iced coffee because apparently I'm a cheap bastard i'm not sure i like iced coffee but i'm gonna, I'm gonna try it like, uh, in the in the summertime i can't i can't and if, especially if i'm walking to starbucks and it's 90 degrees out I, I just can't drink hot coffee i have to drink something cold i really like i mean i, I like iced lattes i just don't know if i like iced coffee mm. so if you yeah, yeah you put like cream and sugar in it it's basically like a latte i mean to me yeah so you're um not to your discerning palate. Right, right. Um, cool. <coughs> you know what people really like on the podcast is when we cough. Yeah. <clears throat> right now, <laughs> a challenge. Like, how can we entire lunch and do after dark? Um, and, real, and talk about nothing. Talk about we'll, nothing. This will be like a test of our real true fans, like the ones that make it all the way. I mean, not just through the episode, but all the way through the after dark where we're sitting here talking about nothing and eating our lunches. Um, I've got some yogurt that I'm, mm. I'm going to eat it, not a, apply it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, 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 anyway. um, I'm eating a lot of trail mix, too. I like trail mix. Really? Do you make your own trail mix, or do you buy a pre-mix? Um, both, actually. Most recently, Kristen made some because we were going um, to Denmark, and I always buy trail mix. Exit. Tra- I always buy trail mix at the airport, um, and I think she knew we had some stuff we needed to use up, and I think she's she's the more um, financially conscious one of the, of the two of us. I think, I think generally, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to say, but she definitely cares about like pinching pennies and stuff like that. I think more so than I do. Um, and so she made some trail mix, which I just finally finished up, but it didn't have enough chocolate chips in it for me because, um, we ran out of chocolate chips. So do you have, is, is your standard trail mix mix like peanuts, raisins, chocolate chips, something else i don't i don't like raisins too much um and the the ones like i buy the like fancier ones at the airport like have that have craisins or cranberry raisins and and dark chocolate and i like the more expensive like fancier nuts like almonds and pistachios and not and not like regular peanuts but yeah so when i make my own that's what i do is i kind of and this is like a we talked about bulk barn and lots of other episodes mm-hmm. so when we every time we go back I'll like go make like the ultimate trail mix that's got Smarties in it, mm. version of M and M's, peanuts and almonds. I really like cashews. Cashews might be my favorite. Mm. Um, I do like cashews too. So, I, you know what? This is like a conversation from um, <laughs> best show. <laughs> like, <do> you, <laughs> I'm Christopher Guest, and I'm like cashew nut. Peanut. <laughs> That's a great movie. 
is. Hey, there's a new HBO show that just well just ended, new current called uh, Family Tree. Mm. Um, that you should check out because it's a eight part series or eight part show that Christopher Guest wrote and directed. Oh, it's really it's I, anything by Christopher Guest. I would I would watch that. Doug turned me on to it and said, "You got to download this." And so it's it's pretty awesome. It's uh, um, about this guy in the UK who his great aunt who he didn't know left him a trunk of all of her like belongings, and he starts researching his family tree, and it takes him to uh, California. And anyway, it's all I mean, it's all improv, and and it's excellent. Christopher Guest plays one of his you know American cousins and is very good. Hmm. Um, the best part about his American cousin, played by Christopher Guest, is that he introduces himself, and then he, he um, someone will ask about his wife, and and he'll pause and say, "Well, she's a she's a missing person. She's she's gone missing. Hmm. We, don't, we don't know." Her. Anyway, it's very it's very funny. <laughs> or funny. Just Christopher Guest's delivery of missing people is very funny. And I, oh, and we're going to see Andreas. Oh, this is great. I have a shirt for him, Andreas. Oh shirt for you because he's gonna listen to it right um i uh um i'm very excited we didn't talk about the shirts at all um so i kind of just made up a number of like i think i have five smalls five mediums five larges or no four larges and six extra larges Mm -hmm. um so we're gonna have to figure out who we need them to okay but we'll do that i don't know not and that although here are the people that i think need shirts Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Bats. Mm-hmm. You. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's in priority order. Yes. Um, uh, Andreas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if we give Linda Harris one yet. I mean, I think you, uh, Renee, Renee's going to get one because she made her class listen. Uh, well, I think, I think with Linda, we show her a shirt and we tell her that it's hers. <laughs> but we don't give it to her. Right. Until she can somehow prove that she's listened to at least one episode. We could also give her a shirt, but tell her she's not allowed to wear it. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> I, I like that better. Let's do that. So you're not You're not able to wear it. Um, just like the podcast. Um, and, she, and she'll be on, you can be, she can be on her honor, right? To not, and she's like, she's Canadian, right? So she's trustworthy. Totally. She she wouldn't. She has no reason to to lie or fib about this. Right. Um, I think we give one to to uh, Carl Custer. Uh, oh, for, like, without a doubt. He was he was on my list of in my head. Um, I'd like to give one. I think to Jack Gazaich because he did come up to me at the norovirus meeting and say that he was listening to this. Um. Oh, what about Mike Roberson? Oh, yeah, Mike, Mike. Mike. Michael, don't call me Mike. Right. <laughs> Michael. Michael, don't call me Mike Roberson. Definitely. I don't know. <laughs> Does he actually say that? No, no. Oh. I just, I just made that up. He doesn't, okay. he doesn't say that at all. He goes by Michael, though. Let's go by Michael, but I'm sure he's going to listen to this and think this is hilarious. <laughs> um, and I'm going to refer to him, even though he doesn't know this. When I see him next week, I'm going to be like, Michael, don't call me Mike. Uh, uh, and maybe I don't know. Maybe that's not a good idea. Um. Who else? Who else? Well, well, we have we have more shirts, so I hope right. I, and we and we and we do. Oh, and what about um, um, that guy that is a fan of the show that you met that I didn't? Tom. Yeah, Tom. Tom Siebert. Siebert. Yeah. Yeah, Tom. 
I don't know if Tom's going to be Tom. If you are going to IAFP, I know uh, we've met. I know what you look like. Um, I'll track you down, and get you a shirt. If not, uh, let me know, and I'll hold one back for you. Definitely, definitely, Tom. Aaron, did we not say Aaron? You, you, Yusugi, Indian oh, butter. Oh wait, CG. <laughs> it's just awesome. Aaron's getting one. people love it when we mispronounce their names. They do. Well, Aaron does. <laughs> uh, okay, well that's good. Oh, uh, probably I think Faith Kreitzer is still listening to the show. Oh, very good. Um, so yeah, there you go. Well, I think we'll we'll come up with a list, and then hopefully people will wear it, and then more people will download and listen to us. Yes, I have some more magnets. Oh, me. and I'm 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 bringing a boatload of magnets. I'm bringing all of my remaining magnets to IAFP. So good. we too. will we will give them out um, uh, in abundance. Well, hey, um, I gotta go, or I should go. Uh, Sounds good. I record this stuff. So um, thanks again. This was fun. It was a good after dark. That was one of our better after darks. Cause we well, I, it was one of our longer after darks. I'm not sure it's one of our better ones. <laughs> I think it was. I think we'll leave it to the fans to judge. Oh, hey. I just got macadamia nut. <laughs> and it's, I, that's the first I've seen. There, is some, there was some issues uh, going on with mixing. And this was a pre-bought one. So. Hmm. Anyway. All right. You know, what I think you ought to do is I think you ought to take that, that trail mix and I think you ought to separate each item into its own category. And and then you can make a bar chart composed of the actual items and you can take a picture of it and, and put it on the internet. That's not bad. I might do that and then also record myself doing that with the video in um, portrait. <laughs> uh, is... Is the title of this episode "Don't Court in Portrait"? It might be. Um, I think I also said something about a crap hole. <laughs> we'll have to listen to it. Yeah, <laughs> I could figure out another word to use there. So, um, all right. Hey, have a good day. Thanks, uh, and I'll see you next week. All right, take care, Ben. Bye. Bye.